It is really hard to be creative and neurodiverse, but I have to remind myself that this is basically what I was put here to do. Like, so you have to have the drive to basically give yourself an ultimatum of like, this is it. Like, this is like what I'm going to be. This is what I'm here to do. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brains. Dyslexia. It will not hold you if you're dyslexic. It's kind of your super. Anything is dyslexic. Dyslexia. Hello, we are Move Beyond Words and welcome back to another episode of our podcast sponsored by Arts Council England. I'm Elizabeth Riffian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. In this episode, we talk to artist, creative director and event manager, Lou Williams. Unlike many of our other guests, Lou isn't dyslexic, but autistic and has ADHD, which are more often than not connected to dyslexia. Today, we discuss Lou's experience as a queer working class artist, how their neurodivergent tendencies have influenced their work and what prompted Lou to create the girl zine, bringing different communities together. Welcome, Lou, to the Move Beyond Words podcast. Hi, Lou. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being with us. We were talking about the, oh, hi, how's it going? And it reminded us of um, what to do in Balamori. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that when, uh, I don't know if you ever watched it, What's a story in Balamori? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know about this story. No, I don't. <laughs> We've already gone off topic. I mean, this is perfectly dyslexic <laughs> and a great way for us to start in all I different could, directions. Yeah, I'm like, right, let's just start with the, the podcast recording with uh, a rendition of like the Mice's tune from Bagpuss. Um, yeah, that's the ADHD's kicking Q, in. Q track. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was going to ask, you know, what motivated you to follow a career in the arts? And now I know it's Bagpuss, right? Yeah, it's the <laughs> tiny animatronic mice that I've wanted to be <laughs> to build. But yeah, what did motivate you, you know, to start a career in the arts other than these wonderful references? <laughs> yeah, basically struggling to uh, do anything else. So I've always made, I've always made art always loved making it um and art is something where you can pursue different interests um so yeah like I'm really interested in like history or kind of like counterculture and then I could just zone in on that one thing um and make art about it essentially or make commentary and I'm also interested in philosophy so like thinking about the world we're in responding to Um, what's going on socially like social politics and you can do all of that through art like I would say the artist is actually like 50 jobs um rolled into one yeah um yeah Mm. and I I mean I did try interior design at one point and uh at St Martin's when I was on foundation and decided to design like a crystal wall that then grew I was hoping it would grow and move and they were like, let's pop you on the fine art course. Like, I don't think you're oh a... Oh, my God. Yeah, your mind is cut out for design. That sounds sick. I know, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, I yeah. need to be an interior designer. Uh, but yeah, they were like, that's kind of more conceptual. So um, I ended up going down the fine art route. Um, yeah, and I'm happy I did. It makes a lot of sense for me and my brain. Speaking of your brain, the wonderful <laughs> brain you have, unlike our other guests, you are not dyslexic or not diagnosed to be dyslexic, Mm -hmm. but you do um, or you are impacted by ADHD, 
and autism. Yeah. So this is a, yeah, it's a new thing for me. (laughs) It's a new thing for you? Fairly, yeah, fairly new, like three years. Oh, wow. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you became aware of your ADHD and autism? Yeah, so it was actually a therapist said it to me. Um, I was doing, uh, I've always suffered with anxiety and depression. A lot of uh, creatives do and yeah, neurodiverse people do. I've been misdiagnosed with loads of stuff like bipolar disorder, things like that, which is classic route for people who are autistic and assigned female at birth. Uh, So I went through all of this stuff and then I was doing, I think it was like the third round of therapy, um, behavioral, what was it? Cognitive behavioral therapy, that one. Yeah. And they said, we keep putting you into situations for you to get over your anxieties about it. And you keep responding in the same way. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I have panic attacks. That's what happens if I get put in this situation. And eventually I had a therapist say, uh, this is really bad for you mentally. In fact, CBT could be quite traumatizing. Have you heard of like Asperger's? And I kind of had this really rudimental understanding of what it was. And to be honest, like quite a stereotypical view of what it was. I was thinking of like Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory, (laughs) which now I know is like, yeah, just a stereotype. Um, And I ended up researching it. I bought... I bought some zines um, about experiences of people who have autism and ADHD. And then I was like, wow, this is me. Yeah, (laughs) this is me. So I'm now nearly three. I'm like towards the end stage of um, getting an autism spectrum disorder. Sorry, that's all the dogs in the studio. (laughs) So I'm at the final stages of the ASD diagnosis. So, I mean, it could be a no, but all the doctors kind of agree that that's what it might be. And then they think it might be what you call comorbid with ADHD. So it's actually harder to tell what you have if you have these two cognitive discrepancies (laughs) Uh, because it's really hard to see one because it interplays with the other. So there's there's stuff like... um, yeah, dyslexia and a dyspraxia that people have thrown at me before and never been formally diagnosed. So I've realised it's probably, yeah, ADHD or autism, essentially. My assistant's dog is not assisting me right now. Uh, yeah, but so, <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know what these conditions are, um, autism is basically a developmental disorder uh, where you struggle to process the world around you. You might struggle socially. You might have trouble making friends, uh, keeping friendships, telling people's facial expressions as well, uh, communicating with people. Sorry. <laughs> My dog has ADHD, ha- for sure. I was about to say, how is it working with um, some very hyperactive friends in the studio <laughs> yeah. with your ADHD? Is yeah. it useful? <laughs> Um, yeah, it is good, but it's like very prone to distractions here because you have a lot of different artists working with each other. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, I don't really need any further distractions. <laughs> My brain's already off on one. Uh, so I have always suffered with migraines. Uh, yeah, honestly, like debilitating migraines where I couldn't go out for like three days. I can't see. I'd have to immediately go to bed and take a really strong medication like codeine. Um, and then I was reading a zine called Existing Autistic by an artist called uh, Megan Rhiannon. And she says in it, she suffered with these intense migraines 
She also had, like, was diagnosed with anxiety and depression and was also, yeah, people were suggesting, like, bipolar, when actually um, these mood changes were a result of being really exhausted from living in a neurotypical society and not having kind of an outlet to express yourself. So which leads to things like meltdowns, which can be mistaken for panic attacks. Um, And it's basically your brain struggling to, yeah, exist in this world, which it definitely isn't built for us. So yeah, I I was reading that zine. And then with the CBT stuff, which wasn't really working, like I'm very open to it. I was like, yeah, I really want to get better mental health. Uh, But it just wasn't happening for me. I'd, I'd go into restaurants and um, I'd get really overwhelmed with the smells in there, especially if there's lots of different people talking at the same time. I ended up once, I think my my moment where the switch flicked, is that the, the flick switch? No, the switch flicked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, was, I was at this restaurant and I was having a great time with my best friend and my partner, um, but it was really smoky in there. And they made a lot of meats in there. So really strong smells, lots of different conversations, very intimate um, I felt myself panicking. I was like, I'm going to have a panic attack. Like, what? why? Like, I'm meant to be having a nice time here. And I ended up having to go outside and throw up in the street because I was like oh, so gosh. overwhelmed and worked up. And yeah, it's happened a few times of going into restaurants and just having to like sit in the restaurant toilet and kind of be like, this is a safe space. Um, yeah, and that that was the moment I was like, okay, this isn't something I can just get over. It's like part of me. And I need to figure out a way of existing so that I can like not be anxious and depressed all the time and to get to know myself a bit better. There's so many things that you're saying that I'm like, oh my God, is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Like I haven't actually made those links before. So when I was younger, I was told I have ADD, mm-hmm. which now we know isn't a thing. It's mm-hmm. ADHD and the hyper comes out in different ways. So I'm hyper-focused And that can be as debilitating as being distracted and exhausting. And the restaurant thing, that's something that um, I was at dinner last night, actually, and had a very similar experience. And I had to ask to switch places so that I couldn't see what was going on behind me. And that way I could focus on the conversation. Yeah. Otherwise, I just can't speak. Yeah. Because my mind is running a million miles an hour. Mm-hmm. God, that's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. And there's times where I'll just go mute if if there's something big has happened. Yeah. Or lots of people are talking to me and I'm really burnt out. I'll just go mute for like a few days. But it's interesting about, uh, what did you say previously before the restaurant ADD, ADHD. Yeah, so that um, and the hyper-focus stuff, Mm. that was something I would do all the time. So I could work on an arts project for like eight hours and someone would walk past me in the studio and say, oh, do you you want like anything from the shop? And I'll like (laughs) re-engage and be like, wow, I'm literally about to piss myself right now (laughs) I just haven't checked in with my body I've been so hyper focused and I'm like wait now I'm checking in with my body I'm also starving (laughs) like I haven't eaten all day yes oh my god my husband always takes the piss because he's like you've not eaten all day and like am I gonna make food for you again because you can't but it it, you know it, it constantly happens where you're just 
yeah, like if I need to get somewhere or I need to do something, like the last thing I'm going to think about is my needs. It's like this needs immediate attention. Exactly. Lou, as well, I think you've explained it so wonderfully in a really uh, like visual sense and describing the actual experiences and scenarios because because they are really intense environment like really intense environments but you want to create a safe space for yourself what kind of things have you put in place to achieve that yeah so it sounds quite extreme to some people but I have actually got an assistance dog oh wow yeah (laughs) and Honestly, that has changed the game. She, I think there's something uh, I haven't, like I've lo- I love animals. I feel like a lot of like Aspie friends also love animals. And just having her around is a massive comfort. So she's trained so she can go in um, restaurants, completely fine. She's really small, just fits under the table. Um even though that's like a major shift, like having a dog with me all the time. Uh, she also does things like pressure therapy. So I don't, I haven't had, I've had two meltdowns since I've had her in two years, which is massive progress wow. for me. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think I've had a panic attack at all um, or like an anxiety attack at all. So she does pressure therapy for me where she just kind of puts her paws on me and lies down because she's quite weighty. <laughs> And then she also gets medication as well. So if I do have a migraine, because I haven't worked out a way to stop those happening, um, she can alert me to it in advance so I can take some medication so that it doesn't come on as bad. Oh my God. Yeah, and she'll get it from my bag if I have kind of flashing lights and can't see where I am. Yeah, (laughs) she's great. So assistance dogs, they're really misunderstood. People think that you just have have to have a guide dog or you have to be deaf or something. But as long as they perform three tasks that improve your life significantly and uh, give you a better experience of living and they're also public access trained, um, then yeah, qualified as an assistance dog. There's no like legal thing. Oh my God, I never knew that. And do they help, like if you're in that hyper-focused state, do they remind you to come out of it? to so, eat yeah. and go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, what she started doing is uh, to tap me if I like picked up my laptop after about seven or eight in the evening. I'll just be out, just get a bit of work done. And she's like, no, we're playing now. <laughs> we're playing. I don't oh know if that's just her like God. being bored, but she, if I pick my laptop after like dinner time, she, she won't let me work on it. She'll just sit on the laptop. <laughs> um, Maybe I know but, yeah. what to get each other for our birthdays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. You know what's helpful as well is get. I struggled to get outside. Like I always take her for a walk in the morning. I have to feed her. So while I'm prepping her food, I get breakfast for myself. So I always definitely have at least breakfast and dinner if I'm on my own. Um, yeah, my partner's not there to remind me because I need to feed her. So weirdly, like just having a dog as well has really helped in that regard, not just like the assistance training. Yeah, <laughs> big fan. And when you say Aspie dogs, mm-hmm. oh, what yeah, so does that mean? In the um, autism community, a lot of people would describe each other as Aspies, which is just like a cute term mm. for other people with <laughs> yeah, neurological disorders. 
And there is such a stigma, as there are with many neurodivergent tendencies. Could you actually just explain exactly, you know, we talked about ADHD there, but autism in terms of how it impacts you, if that's something you're comfortable with? Yeah, so there's obviously this massive stigma and a big stereotype against it. And out in your, I feel like being queer as well, it, it feels really similar to having to out yourself. Mm. So to tell someone, oh, I'm actually bisexual, <laughs> yeah, or pansexual. Um, so there's that that kind of out in, and then people do tend to treat you differently as well. Like not everyone, but I've had a few close friends who are kind of shocked to hear about it. And I was like, it doesn't it doesn't change me as a person. You don't have to act different around me. It just is me making more sense of myself, really, and then how to deal with stuff like the depression and the anxiety. And they're so interwoven, aren't they? Mm -hmm. That it's hard to, it's a really difficult question. Mm. And I find it quite difficult to answer because, one, I'm still really understanding what's going on for me. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to then box something that is just in your own head Mm -hmm. and I think everyone's experience of autism ADHD dyslexia all these different I would say characteristics although we call them you know they're a disability but there's so much a part of me that there is no me and it exactly you know it's all included so you're kind of explaining your character, aren't you? When, yeah. When you're asked to explain like how it impacts you. Yeah, definitely. I think when I try and think about points in my life where it would have been obvious, it's really hard to distinguish it from myself. So stuff like, this is going to sound really sad, but honestly, I'm not sad about it, <laughs> is that I really struggle to keep friends like I love other people and I bond with people really quickly, especially if we have similar interests. I've had so many best friends at points in my life that I no longer have as best friends. And that's either from like just not staying in touch. I have a weird thing where I think if I just pick up a conversation, I'll pick it up where we last left it like two years ago and I will not treat them differently. But I think a lot of neurotypical people would think, oh, Maybe they don't like me anymore. Maybe I've done something to piss them off. Uh, maybe we're different people now. I don't. I honestly don't know. <laughs> like I find that oh really gosh. strange. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've never. I, oh my god! I feel like this is the biggest education because <laughs> that that's what I do. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you're speaking about this because, ironically, I was with my hairdresser yesterday. <laughs> yeah, and you know when you're at your hairdressers, you have all these different conversations, uh-huh. and. Um, she was speaking to me about her housemate who is autistic and she was was talking about her relationship with her and struggling. What I'm trying to say here is that if there's a lack of understanding, you kind of are colliding with one another. Mm-hmm. And actually, the more people are educated about autism, ADHD, uh, dyslexia, you can kind of like, you know, change. You mentioned characteristics or you can change your approach and mm-hmm. kind of be more empathetic. I can imagine her finding it difficult to live with someone who is autistic because, I mean, a lot of us like routine and things a certain way um, and can be seen as difficult as well sometimes. But these are these are just massive stereotypes. But if you understand that that's going to keep us mentally stable and that's like a comfort blanket exactly. for us to exist, 
then people, yeah, it's all all about empathy, really, as you were saying. It's weird you say that. My um, <laughs> my mum came over for Christmas Eve and um, she came an hour earlier than she said she would. And she really? was like, hey, I'm just on the train. I'm going to be there an hour early. And I went, what? What do you mean? We said we were going to meet at this time. And it completely disrupted my order of my day. And it, mm-hmm. And it's such a simple thing. Like, why would you get stressed over that? But there's something about routine for, I think, people who are neurodivergent. And if you disrupt that, um, yeah, it's really stressful. <laughs> it yeah. is very stressful. If I don't get my, I have a, I take my dog down to the beach and I get a coffee and croissant. And then over New Year's, it was obviously closed. People don't want to work in a coffee shop on New Year's. And I was like, what am I going to do? I co- my coffee I make is crap. So I don't want to drink that. <laughs> Where am I going to get the coffee? And then I ended up just missing breakfast and not eating because I was like, I don't know what to do in my life. Like my bus route's now changed because I'm not going to go past the station. It's just like little things like that really then set kind of the wheel, the cogs turning for having yourself a bad day. So it's kind of like, how do you snap out of that? But it's it's hard. And is that kind of identified with ADHD, autism? That's what people say is autistic, Yeah. But they do massively cross over as well. I think the ADHD part of my life is my social skills, which hid the other stuff. Um, right. Because, yeah, I'm I'm not like shy as a person. I mean, I really used to be as a kid, like mute. But um, now I just like like being around people and kind of asking them questions and finding out about them, which people wouldn't associate with autism because they think, oh, they like to be quiet and kind of sit on their own. Wow. Thanks for being so open. I was just going to ask, like, have you noticed the crossovers of, like, the neurodivergent character traits and experiences in in the art and queer communities that you're a part of? Is there more people who are neurodivergent in those spaces, do you notice? Yeah, I think there's people in those spaces that don't care about what other people think, um, which is quite a neurodivergent trait, I'd say. So just for example, uh, I would dress in head-to-toe orange and pink because why wouldn't you? (laughs) It's an amazing colour combination. (laughs) (laughs) And when I'm in art spaces, people dress differently. They have like interesting haircuts and things. but I honestly am like unaware of people thinking that's weird. And maybe that is, yeah, a neurodivergent thing. And there tends to be more people willing to be creative and kind of less judgmental as well. I know you get like, there's a whole fashion industry, which has this kind of bitchy stereotype, but kind of in the arts, it feels like people being different is quite a a good thing. Um, Good to have diverse thoughts. I agree because actually, uh, we're visual people and mm-hmm. we latch on to visual cues. And even a friend was interviewing someone recently and one of the interviewees had blue hair and they remember them. Yeah. I mean, that's like, and I think that's fantastic. So with your orange and pink, you know, it may seem weird from an outside perspective, but actually it's, we're helping each other out with identifying with each other. Yeah, right? I think so. You're like, okay, you're my kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The signal. It's funny you said that about the hairdressers because, um, yeah, my my hairdresser is always excited because when I go in, I'm like, whatever you fancy, like whatever you think looks good, I'm, I'm willing to try it. At one point I had yellow on top. I had my roots for yellow and then it 
faded into pink and then orange at the ends. And then everyone in the salon, you could tell people who were getting their hair bleached, um, they were like, why Why would you want yellow roots? Because it looks like you <laughs> haven't kind of toned it. And then the woman next to me literally turned to my hairdresser and was like, like, is that an accident? Like, why would, why would that person, like, is that intentional? Oh, God, <laughs> I know, how did like, you manage that? About me. Um, well, I heard her. It was like talking to my hairdresser as my hairdresser was walking off. And I was kind of shocked. But my initial reaction was like, why wouldn't I dye my hair like this? It looks amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Duh. I know. Get with it. I'm like, honestly, (laughs) why would you even bother being annoyed about that? Or why would you make a comment? Yeah, or question it. It shows other people's insecurities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned then own kind, my kind of people. Speaking of, a fellow Mm. Essex friend. Yeah. South End based. I don't have the accent, which is, it, I, it's sad because people then go, wait, you're from Essex. You don't sound like you're from Essex. But there's all different wonderful people that live there. Do you um, have, like, people who come from like North Essex sound very different to South Essex. Mm, and then I East? I might be North then. I, you are, aren't you? You're North Essex. No? Yes, yes. Yes. This is actually, this is a very dyslexia thing. Because You're great at geography. Don't know direction. Don't know direction. <laughs> also, we were doing this estuary project. And I think I call it the estuary quite a lot throughout the whole conversation <laughs> yeah. until I had to Google it. And then, you know how you, on Google you can do that sound, you know, like you can click, how does this sound? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, and it was estuary. And I was like, oh no. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, Um Talking about being on the estuary, South End based, and you describe yourself as a working class artist. What barriers have you faced in your career because of this, if any? Yes. So I had this idea, right, that when I would get into university, that I would be accepted into the middle and upper class realms of society. I and mean, you I went know. to Oxford. Like, so, yeah. So I went to, I studied fine art at Oxford. And I went there and I didn't even realize I was working class, to be honest, until that point. And I didn't really think that class mattered. And and then I realized the people I grew up with and my family, we weren't middle class. <laughs> we definitely weren't. It was super alienating. And I actually clicked at that point that, yeah, England or the UK in general has still has this massive class issue. And it, it's a lot more subtle because you have the whole... In fact, from Essex, like the Basildon man and the kind of like new money. Yeah. Billa Ricky Dicky. Billa Ricky Dicky. Yeah, I actually oh, come yeah. from Billa Ricky. <laughs> so you've got this whole idea of like you can assimilate. And then because I was going to this institution, it, it was proper old money. Like you got the vibe, that whole Tory vibe, the Boris Johnson vibe of that. Even if you are new money, it's tacky. Like it's, yeah, that it's like not not the right kind of, heritage <laughs> you know um and I did I was studying fine art so I, I had an amazing time for three years like just basically getting in like researching whatever I wanted kind of learning different techniques of making and really plunging myself in there and because it has the money and the resources it was amazing you could kind of make whatever you wanted you had really supportive tutors but I never really got on with the the kind of college level so to be at Oxford you have to be part of a college. Um, so you basically live, work and eat there. But because I was on the fine art course, I'd have to like cycle to the art building 
where most people just studied like in the college or very nearby. Um, so I wasn't part of the college culture as much. And that was like a different scene. I went to quite a liberal college. It's called St. Catherine's. And um, it was designed by a modernist architect, Arnie Jacobson. It had like Barbara Hepworth sculptures there. Wow. It was like probably the most modern one you get in Oxford. And um, even then, the, the the people I came across were still just quite shocking to me. They're, some of them were lovely people, but just things like skiing. I have never wanted to go skiing. <laughs> I don't understand why you go to a holiday in a cold place. And it's just like cultural stuff like that, like, that people didn't really get. Looking back on your time, do you see now where kind of ADHD and autism played a part while you were studying? Yeah, I ended up having like a first kind of massive breakdown of mental health when I was there because there's this culture to just work, work, work. And obviously I would just hyper-focus and I'd end up burning out and crying in my bathroom and kind of locking myself away for days, having like really horrible, like trigger warning, like suicidal thoughts and things like that because you just felt hopeless because there'd always be someone who can work harder than you and to like make better stuff than you. Um, and to be in the library until 6am in the morning and also go up partying and then go straight to the library. Like that culture oh, um, is really big there. So being someone who's quite obsessive and gets really into things, I don't think that was super helpful. Um, there could definitely be more support there for sure. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that experience, but I can see from the work that you're doing, it's really fed into your desire to want to make change. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you're here to tell that story. Thanks. In 2015, you founded Girlzine Fair. You got it. <laughs> uh, where you run zine workshops and events aimed at platforming women, queer and neurodivergent creators. How did that all start? Yes. Okay, let me take you back to 2015. I was a mouthy feminist and I got involved with a collective called Country Living, spelt with a U and yeah, without the O. And we had like a Facebook <laughs> group, yeah, that grew and was really controversial, kept getting put in newspapers uh, for just talking about feminism. And we also made a zine, which we risograph printed, which is a special way of printing things, which is really good for the environment. And that was at Oxford Green Print. And we'd publish it. And it was this amazing feeling of you would write about stuff and then people would be like, have you picked up the latest issue of Country Living? Like, oh no, where can I get a copy? Um, and we'd spread it around campus. And yeah, that is where my love of zines started. So I thought, where do I get other zines? They're quite hard to get a hold of. People just make them in their bedrooms, essentially. Don't often sell them. So I hosted a zine fair with a bunch of friends in an old church in Oxford in 2015. And we invited other zine makers to come and do a panel talk. We had bands as well. And we had people selling their zines. So I like expanded my collection basically <laughs> through running that event. And then I got invited by Keith Miller, who ran the Shacklewell Arms based in London. And I think they also might run the Moth Club as well. Two incredible venues. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Legendary. So that's why I did the first one in London. I think that was 2016. And then, yeah, did a few every year I would go back there um, and host a zine fair. 
which eventually led to a festival in South End because there's more space in South End to be honest. There's more you can mm. get you can get little pockets of funding to help you kind of run stuff here, um, and it's less competitive as well, which was helpful. So I, I then hosted um, the first like feminist festival, uh, Girlzine Festival in 2017. And then I did one in 2019 and it expanded every year. So the last one we did had 40 zine makers. We had a stage that um, Girly, who is a musical musical artist, <laughs> not a visual one, uh, <laughs> performed. And then we had artist commissions, artworks, a pop-up gallery, the Girlzine Library, which was a pop-up. And then we co-curated a stage with Galdem zine and also had like eco screen printing, van pull up and different workshops. So it's trying to pull together this idea that making zines is like really accessible and that also other art stuff can be accessible. And how do you tie art and politics together as well? Like always keeping it relevant and political, but also accessible as well. Not this kind of high art world. That's scary and weird. (laughs) Yeah. And and as a part of that, you know, you advocate for intersectional feminism and inclusion and accessibility. Could you just explain what what those terms mean to anyone familiar with that language? Yeah, so intersectional feminism basically means you're really aware of other struggles people might have. So it's not just kind of feminism for white women, because that's where, to be honest, that's where feminism started. That's when people started talking about it. I'm not saying it's the start of women's rights, but it's the more formal aspect of women sitting down. Yeah, like the pancreas and thinking, we need to write up a feminist manifesto or constitution. Uh, so it's thinking about like people who are assigned female at birth might have different experiences because they're black, for instance, or they're disabled. So it's just taking into account that people's experiences are really different. If you're working class as well, how does that affect your feminism? So like a white woman walking down the street might be catcalled, but she might not be racially abused. Um, and that's still a part of part of feminism. It's about fighting for equality of all, all genders. So yeah, it's just being aware of that. It's a, it's a very fancy and long word that's on, yeah, ridiculously <laughs> long. <laughs> no, but really interesting. I've been speaking with my friends recently about the impact of therapy. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that at the beginning. And just before we move on, um, maybe just un- unpack that a little bit, because it's it's a bit of a to-do subject. I feel people don't disclose if they have therapy. But I think especially you mentioned people who are neurodivergent are, you know, suffer with depression a lot. So, um, yeah, how has that impacted you? Yeah, I think everyone should get therapy. Like, if you think you don't need therapy, then you have not examined yourself enough. Um, We live in, like, a really complex and challenging world uh, that I don't think is made for people to really, like, enjoy themselves (laughs) and also have a nice time. Like, essentially, we're all workers and we are part of a system that needs us to make profit in order to just, like, survive. So that isn't a great way of existing as a human who should be running around and, like, eating berries and playing. Um, So I think that therapy is really helpful for everyone to kind of unpack 
uh, yeah, like trauma and also to know yourself a bit better. Um, in terms of like neurodiverse therapy, it's really important that you do pursue a diagnosis. Um, like I'm still in the process of, because it does really affect the way you're kind of handled through these systems. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think therapy is taboo at all, but that might be because I'm autistic <laughs> that I don't understand that it's a taboo. So I'll, I'll happily talk about money as well. I don't, yeah, I don't kind of pick up on the vibe of um, socially awkward things. I think it's great to be really open and just be honest with each other. Uh, yeah, not oh, to like gatekeep. <laughs> No, no, too. This is refreshing. Yeah, it's really refreshing. And also just like an education, as I keep saying, but I'm kind of having these like light bulb moments over here. Yeah. Well, that's great because then you can go away and and research and kind of talk to therapists as well. Yeah. And also then you'll be part of a very loving and like generous community as well. Like I feel like the neurodivergent community is, yeah, making the world a better place essentially just the way we think and like handle other things and it's all centered around empathy um Mm. which is yeah something i definitely change in the world to have more empathy if you could wave a magic wand in society what would you change yeah i definitely like society to be more empathetic and for people to not be so uh, worried about working together collaboratively Mm. so capitalism is obviously an ideology just like feminism is it it helps people kind of function um but what I'm very anti is the idea of individualism because I mean the reason why our planet is so ruined is because we have this idea of the individual as a consumer like I go into a cafe I'm I'm paying for a service so you have to be nice to me um like I'm I'm eating a packet of crisps and I'm gonna throw it on the floor because it's just one it's just one person throwing rubbish on the floor it's one just one person like polluting the sea and that's because it's ingrained in us to think for ourselves like to prioritize ourselves and I think that does come from capitalism and the more you kind of consider the impact of your actions on others and how you can work together I think yeah society would be so much better like when people work together And Mm. yeah, people who hoard wealth and they have so much power because obviously capital equals power in our world. I just really wonder what the world would look like when it's people coming together have power. So when you are 10,000 people protesting, like that that should look like a lot of power, but really sadly in our society, it, it doesn't. It looks like someone who's very rich and eaten educated at number 10 has power. So I'd be interested to see what the world would look like if our perspective shifted. I mean, Lou, you've got so many qualities and I can see it in your work and your advocacy and passion and empathy levels. You know, the, you have so many qualities, but if you were to kind of pinpoint one that has empowered you to be who you are today, what would that be? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> just, just a slight <laughs> just question, a you know. One. Just a little, little nudging question. 
Um, okay, I think curiosity. Like, I always want to know. I want to know what would happen if we collaborated together. I want to learn stuff all the time. Too many people think that they, I come across it in the art world a lot when I'm running workshops. They're like, I can't draw, I can't make. But like, what if you did? And what if it was silly? And what if that was fine? <laughs> like that drive to be curious and just try things out, I think is really helpful. Because yes, I didn't imagine I would do a fine art degree and then end up running events or, or publishing, really. Um, but it's because I wanted to try it out. So yeah, maybe curiosity. <laughs> Actually, I had a question for you about dance because thinking about collaboration and working together, I was watching the new Will Smith documentary where he's talking about swarms and how like antlet, um, who are the people, who are not the people, the animals with the antlers, the kind of, um, I mean, I'm going to say deers, but no. Yeah, kind of like Ra- buff- buffaloes type things. Buffalo. Maybe then. Rhinos. Yeah, I think it's like buffalo vibes. They go on a massive migration every year. And he was also talking about uh, kind of like birds when they fly together in these swarms and how essentially they have like this feeling between each other. They don't communicate it verbally like we would. They just communicate through their body movements and they make these massive, really like life-threatening decisions like, are we going to cross a river and there's alligators in it? And they do it instantaneously because they're moving together. And I was wondering, do you think humans have that at all? And like, what would that look like if we were more open to being receptive to people's kind of body movements and, and working in that way? Well, just to jump in there, I think you're asking that question because you have it. Because (laughs) I can pick up on, and I think this is a neurodivergent thing, that we have this um, receptor that is really open to people's bodies and body Mm. language. And we can understand what someone is feeling just from observing them. Yeah. So I'm throwing that one back on you. Um, well, yeah, just, you know, even this conversation, obviously we're doing this one remote today, but, mm. um, and we were going to hear you. And then Liz said, oh no, I really need to see Lou. <laughs> yeah. we need, you need to see body yeah. language. You need to see reaction. Um, it, we feed off that so much as a human. Mm. And, but I mean, coming back to your point about making, you know, life-threatening decisions, <laughs> you know, I wonder if um, you, we all came together and you were saying about how, uh, diverse people, different people coming together. If you actually just were all in one studio space or one space and you didn't speak, what would happen? Like, yeah, that's an amazing task within itself. Just looking at, you know, interaction and movement with yeah. no words, which is very move beyond yeah. words. If I don't say so myself, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I, 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 do, I do think when we have scary situations, everyone kind of gets into this mentality of like protect yourself. And like, it's about me. And then everyone runs around and like swarms or falls over each other. But like, what if we moved like buffalo? (laughs) What if we had that? Let's move like buffaloes. Like that should be, that should be the hashtag for this app. (laughs) New podcast. (laughs) Move like a buffalo. But uh, this week, actually, um, I have been making a new work. And the first thing I did in the first rehearsal, which I had such limited time, but I did not want to start the process until the group had found 
a language and trust between them all to be able to move as a collective. Mm -hmm. Because if that didn't occur early on, I wouldn't be able to put them in those scary situations and push them as hard as I wanted to push them unless they they had found their language. So it's something that I, I do think about a lot and that practice of finding a flow within a group and finding mm. your language. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would encourage people who are not physically based or dancers to also apply that practice. It's, mm. it's I mean, it would be interesting to see what unfolds. Mm-hmm. I, suppose- I, do, I feel the same way when people are making zines as part of my zine workshops you'll get into this flow state where you're just making and you're cutting out things and there'll be certain conversations that come up but it's just like being together and creating it feels like we're witches around a cauldron or something like something's brewing there there's like this feeling but I can never describe it but everyone who comes along then leaves and it's like feels really empowered from it and has feels that they've got this sense of solidarity with the group Mm. I think it makes you a really good kind of artist and social practitioner and like workshop host is to be really aware of people's different needs and making them feel safe in a space. So it's you have to react really fast because people are coming into the space from really different experiences and different kind of like emotional levels. So being really honest and kind of saying, hey, I am neurodiverse. I have these kind of issues. But um, other people kind of like relax and they're like, okay, I can be weird in this space. <laughs> um, I think that's always really helpful. There's been, yeah, there's loads of times I've come up against problems as well. I think, I think the funniest story of having an issue was I was at an event and I had my assistant's dog with me. And then I had people come up to Polly and say, oh, can I pair her, blah, 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 this old couple, actually. And I said, no, you can't pair her. I'm really sorry, she's working. She needs to, like, be able to respond to me. And they said, oh, what's she working as? And I was like, assistant's dog. And they said, oh, what does she assist with? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm autistic. And then <laughs> the old lady turns around to the old man and says this dog can smell out autism. <gasps> oh my God. And then the, and then oh the older guy goes, oh, we better leave then. And then they no, like no. proceed to rush away from me. This is why we're having this conversation <laughs> to educate. Oh, wow, Lee. I was bamboozled. There's so many things to unpack there. You've shared so much, but what advice would you give to young buffaloes, aka young creatives, going through systemic challenges? So it is really hard to be creative and neurodiverse and uh, come from, yeah, I come from a family where no one went to university and everyone kind of did manual jobs. Uh, So taking the route I did was quite scary, but I have to remind myself that this is 
basically what I was put here to do. Like I am really good at being creative and working with other people and thinking of new ideas. <laughs> um, so you have to have the drive to basically give yourself an ultimatum of like, this is it. Like, um, this is like what I'm going to be. This is what I'm here to do. Uh, so if you do want to work in the arts and you do love it, um, I think maybe, yeah, just like keep pursuing it because it sounds really bad, but I actually think the most successful artists are the ones that are still standing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of successful artists are, yeah, in their 80s, like Louise Bourgeois was like 80 when she had her first show. So yeah, just like stay in your lane, keep your head down and like you're, you're, you know you're good at it. So yeah, keep on because it will pay mm. off at some point. Like things will start to roll together and I noticed that through doing the zine stuff and collaborating with people more. The more you collaborate, the more other people want to work with you because they've seen your work through someone else. Um, so there's that whole ideology of artist genius. Like you sit in your studio, just make work. Someone might come and give you a show. That's like not the case anymore. I, I really think it's about working with other people and trying to make stuff happen together. 100%. And it's so much more fulfilling. Yeah. I wonder what advice your younger self would be giving to you now. I think uh, make more time for my own kind of making and my own expression because I, I do spend a lot of time, um, especially with the girls stuff, it's applying for funding applications and doing like a lot of admin and actually very, as an artist, it sounds weird, but I probably make stuff like, I don't know, two or three days a month, I have time to actually just make stuff. Um, so yeah, to prioritize making, I think, because as I was younger, I guess it's the time, luxury of time um, as well. You don't have to like pay your bills, but I had a lot more making time and also time to be bored. Like I don't really have any, <laughs> any time to be bored. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas when I was a lot younger, I'd you know, get home from school and you would be bored, wouldn't you? So you'd like think of these new ideas or new artworks and it came to you a lot easier. So it's kind of, yeah, allowing myself to be bored. Well, you've done far from that during this <laughs> yeah. time that we've had together. Um, I've been like on the edge of my seat making notes as Charlie has as well. Just really just enjoying what you're sharing with the world, but also just with the time that we've had together. So a massive, massive thank you. Yeah. Hey, thank you. It's been great. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. From as little as a pound, the price of seven bananas from Tesco's, you can join our network on Instagram, enjoy access to behind the scenes content and receive a Move Beyond Words welcome pack. To become a patron, please head over to patreon.com slash movebeyondwords or follow the link in the show notes. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios, London, with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker. <laughs>